Okay, so here we go. We're studying the book of Jude. Last week, we got through two and a half verses. This week, in theory, we're going to get through three and a half. And this book of Jude is 25 verses, and it is packed full of truth. Last week, we jumped headfirst into this. And as Barbara just read, everything kind of fits into verse 3. The reason for this book was originally Jude was going to write about the common salvation of the people in the church, and something, the Spirit in particular, convicted him and changed the direction of where he was going. Today, we're going to study a passage that's full of hard-hitting truth while giving us a glimpse of how vital and important it is for God's called and kept in Jesus Christ to contend for the faith. We say that we believe God at His Word at Church of the Valley. We claim this. I've seen many people within this congregation grow in their understanding of God's Word. But most importantly, I've experienced people, including myself, grow in their obedience to God's Word. There are times we say that the Bible is our final authority, but today we're going to be tested. Today we're going to be challenged by that because spiritually... Our spiritual and our practical living may be in conflict based on what we study today. So I just want to say my hope for us is that we would love God and love others, but we would love the God who reveals himself through the scriptures, not a God we have made up in our own minds apart from the word of God, apart from the Bible. I want to begin with the fact that today we're going to cover a passage that includes what God calls sexual immorality. Woohoo! And what I hope we can understand by the end of this message is that God has an ideal. And when we choose to go against that ideal, for whatever reason, we're sinning. But sin does not have to have final word, church. No matter your sin, no matter your identity being placed in something other than God and his love for you, you, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you have the opportunity to repent and change direction and follow Jesus. But today may be hard for some of us to take because we live in a culture that is very anti-God's word. Did you know that? Or is that just in Santa Clara? And has convinced us, this culture, the, what the Bible calls sin isn't sin because it's a preference and we shouldn't be told what we should prefer is what I think I've been taught over and over again by culture. I'm not excited to teach today what this passage has to say, but because Christ is my Lord, I trust what he says. In the context in which it is said, using other scripture to confirm and interpret while the Holy Spirit leads us in grace and truth. Last night, Aaron and I went to an old friend of mine's Christmas party. I hadn't seen this old friend for, I saw her at our 20-year high school reunion, uh, this past summer, but I hadn't seen her before that for almost a decade. She invited us to this party that she had at her house. We got dressed up a little. We bought gifts that we could use for the white elephant exchange. We brought an appetizer, and we headed off to this friend's house that we've really only seen once in a long time. When we arrived, we met a bunch of new people we hadn't before. Is anyone kind of getting nervous just based on the story, like you had to go meet new people? Please don't do the talk to each other and say hi to one another in church. <laughs> and we did the general thing that you do when you meet someone new. Eventually, the question comes up, what do you do? 
And whenever I get asked that, I just look at my wife and I'm like, okay, here we go. So I obviously said to this man that I was an accountant. No, I didn't. <laughs> I told him what my wife and I both did at, at this church, and he proceeded to ask more questions while inferring his opinion based on what he thinks religion is. He asked what kind of church we are. And because we're not actually really affiliated with any denomination, I said, well, we're non-denominational, but that doesn't tell you anything. I said, well, uh, we're a Jesus church. <laughs> he had no understanding of what that meant. He, but he did say, yes, Jesus was a really good man, and teaching his teachings can make you a better person. And I said, well, I understood what he meant, but that's not about, it's not about just following Jesus' teachings like Jesus is Gandhi but personally following and obeying Jesus Christ in a personal and experiential relationship. Needless to say, the conversation ended there after I said this. But it was very interesting to hear his take on what he thought the Christian faith is all about. Today we're going to continue in the book of Jude, and Jude calls the church that he is speaking to to contend for the faith. And as we, the church of God, have a lot of people within the church who see a lot of issues through a cultural lens, raise your hand if you do, I'm just kidding, rather than a biblical one, today I guess the Bible's going to challenge our allegiance to Jesus. As we may say that we love God, but there are areas where we refuse to believe that God would say something that goes against how we want God to be. So let's begin in verse 3, Jude 3. Dear friends, dear beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt, great word, compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Last week, we covered the beginning of this verse, that Jude made a lane change and wanted to admonish, admonish and encourage God's called and kept to contend for the faith. But today, but today, let's begin with the end of the verse that we didn't unpack as much, because I think it will help frame what we discussed today in the next many verses of this passage. Part B of Jude 3, it says, urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude urges. He believes we ought to earnestly contend if we've committed to Jesus Christ, to agonize over the truth of God. And last week we said that the thing we contend for is the person, the work, and the deity of Jesus Christ. That's what we contend for. But we also said that heresy or false teaching isn't necessarily just wrong teaching. It can also be emphasis of the wrong thing. So we ought to agonize over the fact that many call themselves Christians but don't actually love Jesus. Knowing Jesus Christ is not about knowing all the facts, it's about knowing him personally. I know a lot of theologians who are yet to repent. I know seminary professors who have never shed a tear over the crucifixion. I know pastors who want to make much of themselves rather than make much of Jesus Christ, and that's been me in the past for sure. This is why we must agonize over truth. We must contend for the faith with grace and mercy, but we can't slow down on making it all about Jesus. This is why we introduce people to Jesus. This is why in Acts chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, that we must sit with people and study the Bible together, because how will people understand unless someone 
coaches us and helps us read and apply the words of God. We get to do this together, church. Jude says, for the faith that was once for all. Listen, this doesn't say faiths. This is about one faith, a faith that is centered and emphasizing Jesus and his finished work, which provides a relationship with God through what Jesus has done and our receiving of that grace. This faith is one that is given to God's people. It isn't attained, it's not earned, it's received. This faith that we contend for is something that has not only been given to us, but entrusted to us. Those who are entrusted the faith are entrusted with an expectation to contend for the faith, that we would contend for it and struggle against those who want to pervert the faith. For who? For those who are God's holy people. In the New American Standard Version, it says it this way, verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. If you've committed to Jesus Christ, you're a saint. We're not putting you in stained glass, but you're a saint. And we finished with verse 3 last week, and now we're going to continue on to verse 4. What Jude writes and what we're going to study today seems really harsh. That's why we had Barbara read it, because it sounds less harsh when she reads it. <laughs> but it comes out of love that he has for the recipients of this letter. Verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Jude now starts his description of the false teachers who will, we will need to contend for against the faith. These people were already in the church. They weren't coming to the church like in Second Peter. They were already there. And Jesus makes known that they're there, and he's going to explain what they're like. He begins with, they are ungodly people. I don't know what you think of when you hear ungodly, but it would probably be really easy to conjure up some stereotypical versions of ungodly ungodly and really miss what it means. Here, I'm going to give you something you can write down because the thing is none of us are perfect. None of us do good things all the time, really ever, unless Christ is leading us. And none of us actually do what the Bible calls good works without God being the catalyst for that work. Our motivations matter, and just because someone is helpful or from their vantage point selfless, they may do it to justify themselves, and their works may be in vain. The ungodly aren't just someone who just sin, but they're the ones who choose their sin over the Savior. Ungodly, here's what it means. Here's one of my favorite definitions. Ungodly means to be without worship, to be without worship, to be without worship for Christ and God, to be impious or to not be pious. Because you can do what the world considers good for the wrong reasons, and your humanitarian effort is as dead as your sin. Because your effort cannot ever justify you. But doing things out of obedience to God's word, because you are affectionate, affectionate and worshipful towards his kindness expressed to you in Jesus Christ, that's what godly people do. It's not humanitarian effort. It's obedience to what God says at his word. So he says that they are, there are ungodly people that pervert the grace of Jesus Christ by using it as a license to do whatever they want. 
And what the natural man wants is not what God wants. This is why sin is so prevalent. You can say you are a Christian. You can claim you are in Christ. You can go to church. You cannot swear. You can eat food that's good for you. You can be baptized and totally show that you are without Christ by allowing your earthly desires to be more important and lived out than what the Spirit of God actually tells you to do. I know that we sin. We all do, just so you know. But these false teachers that Jude is warning against sin and treat it as if it's no big deal because Jesus paid for that on the cross so that they don't have to worry about condemnation, but they're taking this as license. In fact, Romans 8 verse 1, the first half of it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What a promise. What a blessing. I am so grateful to know that the things that I've thought and the things that I've wanted to do and even the things that I've done do not condemn me because I have a relationship with God. But those who are saved, signed, and delivered by Jesus Christ, they don't have condemnation waiting for them. They do not have to live in guilt or shame because of their former lives defining them. A new identity is offered to them and has been received if they, if we, are truly found in Christ because by faith we've repented, changed direction. But just because there's no condemnation, Paul says in Romans 6, he says it like this, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He answers his own question. By no means. I love people like that. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. I don't know how you read that verse, but that gives me hope. So just because we are redeemed, it doesn't mean that there is this license to live however we want. But because we were bought at a price, a, price, a cost that cost God the Father, God the Son, we ought to live for him led by the work and direction of the Holy Spirit, obeying and putting into practice God's very word. So the second part of this verse, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Here's what pervert means. It means to steer away from its intended course. They deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. This way of thinking and living denies that Jesus is necessary. It perverts what grace actually is, getting what you don't deserve. It is what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Look at this quote. He says this, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace isn't grace at all. Because it's a misunderstanding of what God actually gives. Because grace is being given what you do not deserve. And everything we're talking about today is about belief. If you want the key to what we're talking about, it's not about sexual preference. It's not about what you do sexually. Everything we're talking about today has to do with belief. Do we not only believe in God, but do we believe God at his word? Do we believe what he says in his very scriptures? Do we believe that he offers grace? 
Because if we do, how we respond to this grace proves if we really do believe Him or not. When God gifts you, gives you grace, it isn't taken for granted, but it's gratefully received. And receiving grace tends to manifest itself or show that it has happened by how you treat others, you realize what you're forgiven of. So here's what I mean. Forgiven people forgive people. Did you know that? When I meet people that are unforgiving but claim they know Jesus, I question which Jesus they believe in. Because forgiven people forgive people. So as these false teachers have gotten into the church, you see them in the way they treat the grace of God. They deny Jesus Christ being who he says that he is, who the Bible claims that he is, and what many, many, many martyrs have died preaching that he is. And they deny Jesus Christ our sovereign and Lord. They may, the way many act, they may never say with their mouth that they deny Jesus Christ as Lord, but in this scenario, actions do speak louder than words. And how many act, they do not treat Jesus as ultimate, as sovereign in control of everything, and Lord and Master and King. We've said before, what could God take from you that would make you deny Him? You think through that. What are the things in your life that are so important to you? And whatever that is, that's an idol in your life. But also, what about God that you have read that you just refuse to believe? That is where you paint a picture of a God that isn't God. And no matter how much you want him to exclude something about his character, it doesn't mean it's going away. Verse 5, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Though you already know this, he's bringing this to the front of their minds. He's bringing it to their memory and how it applies consistently through Scripture. See, God is a gift giver. Did you guys know that? Santa's got nothing on Jesus. And he gives us himself. He gives us his son. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us grace. He gives us life. And those who through faith trust him, he gives the blessing of an eternity with him. But as we say often, God don't play games. He is a God who is so pure, so holy, so perfect that he cannot be where sin is. He excludes himself from impurity. But in the person and work of Jesus Christ, wrath has been poured out upon him on the cross for our sin. Because Jesus was and is and always will be perfection personified. He never did anything wrong. He did everything right. But all of his actions came out of his identity being God incarnate. And when you or I trust Jesus Christ, we no longer find our identity in the things that we do. Let me say that again because it's pretty important. When we trust Jesus Christ, we no longer find our identity in the things we do, the things we've done, our political affiliation, our sexual preference, and or our urges. When we're in Christ, we are not defined by those things. We're defined by the cross in an empty tomb and... And the fact that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. See, Christianity isn't about rules. I don't know if any of you are hearing, oh, well, you have to believe this or believe that. Da, da, da. I don't know what you're hearing. I'm not sure what you're getting from what I've said so far. But Christianity is not about rules. Christianity is about an identity being placed in a good God who didn't count your sins against you because of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. 
And the emphasis of Christianity isn't rules because just by keeping them, that doesn't get you to God, which also means that if you break them, that doesn't exclude you from God if you're in Christ. Why am I yelling? Because I'm passionate about this. (laughs) See, not trusting Jesus Christ is the only thing that excludes us from God. That's it. Not trusting Jesus Christ. Our unwillingness to obey Him and ultimately know Him personally. So Jude points out that God delivers, but uses the word destroyed to say what he eventually did. Now, I can't Joel Osteen this word, all right? There is no way to soften this word. Destroy means to ruin or cause destruction. That's what it means. And for some of us, we want to treat God as the ultimate passive dad, don't we? I was at Disneyland once and probably told this story like 37 times here, but I'm 39, so I can say the same stories now. I was at Disneyland, I saw this father, uh, he had like a three-year-old boy, and his boy was acting up and getting out of line and grabbing stuff and just being crazy. And I saw the dad look at the son, he was kind of embarrassed, but he's like, he's like, Billy, I don't even remember if that was his name, Billy, you need to get back here. And the kid was just running around, he's like, and then he's like, if you don't get back here, I'm going to start to count. And so he started to count. One, two. I'm counting to three, Billy. You better get back here. Two and a quarter. (laughs) Two and a half. Two and some percentage of pie. I don't even know what that means. Three. Billy. You know what he did at that point? Nothing. And all of us know if we're parents or we've been parented, we know that's bad parenting. But for some reason, we want to do the same thing with God where God warns us over and over and over and over again, and yet we just expect Him to keep counting. God is so serious about His glory and holiness, and yet He gives us a way to come to Him in Jesus Christ. But if you want to refuse that, He gives you what your heart desires, which is an eternity without Him. And I can see the goodness of God in that fact because he is so patient. Second Peter chapter 3, we're going to read a little, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives, worshipful lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, verse 14, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Real quick, sidetrack, you can't make yourself blameless and spotless. Only Jesus can. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. I need my Lord to be patient. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which is very true, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. God is so patient with his creation, but... People who deny, distort, and ignore God, it leads to destruction, and that's not a fun thing to say. I, Jude, Peter, Paul, Jesus, 
don't find any joy in the fact that people perish without God. None. But some refuse to come to him, the one who did for them what they could not do for themselves in Christ Jesus. Jude 6. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Happy, happy, joy, joy. See, Jude begins with the Israelites, who God made a covenant with and brought them out of slavery and took them to the promised land eventually. Now he goes to show that he punishes angels who left their position of authorities and rebelled against God and His glory. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about this, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, and this is pointing back to Genesis 6, but it's also pointing back to Satan, who was an angel who would rather have glory for himself than for God, and God sent him to hell. God is about his glory, and he will not be a passive authority when people or even angels rebel against him. Verse 7, here we go. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding towns, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, deep breath, guys. I want you to take a moment and just be still. Because what we're going to talk about right now, especially in 2019 in the South Bay area, (laughs) may be the least agreeable subject that God's Word and society have. But the Word says it, so we're going to talk about it in the context in which it's shared with Jesus being the point. You ready? Anyone? Okay. Jude continues with in the same way. He uses these three circumstances, the Israelites, the rebellious angels, and now the people of Sodom and Gomorrah as explicit examples of God bringing wrath upon his creation because of their sin. But what sin? Hear me, their unbelief in all three circumstances. But we are quick to look at the point that Jude makes that they were sexually immoral and perverse. Now, I'm not going to read Genesis 19. It says some explicit things that I don't want some of our less mature people to hear, and I don't mean the young people. I'll get it. But in this corporate setting, let me tell you that there was sexual perversion in Genesis 19 that was both hetero, hetero, and homosexual. It was both. So look at Paul's words about the ungodly, those without worship, what they did. He's speaking of this in Genesis 19, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than a creator who is forever to be praised, amen. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is harsh, but I want us to see that Scripture doesn't pat sin on its head. And we can't redefine what is right and wrong. We can't redefine what God's ideal or not is. 
But at the end of the day, people who lack belief in God and His Word attempt to redefine what they want because, as Paul says, it's their shameful lusts. Now, I don't want to get too explicit, but let's talk about sexual intimacy for a moment. Same-sex attraction is not the problem here. Finding your identity in anything other than Jesus Christ is the problem. I'm a Christian before I am anything else. I identify with Jesus. I identify as his child. I am his servant, not a slave to my urges, but to the beauty and grace of Jesus Christ. That's what it means when I say I am a slave of God's. I'm a child of God's. And listen, all of us are enslaved to something. So I'd much rather be enslaved to Christ, who did for me what I couldn't do for myself. So listen, I'm not here to do the sex talk with everyone, or for parents who don't want to do it with their children. I'm going to have to teach this to two of my daughters next service, just so you guys know. But I'll say this, sexual intimacy is an amazing gift from God to his creation, and all the husbands said amen, just putting that out there. But it is. It is a gift within a covenantal marriage relationship, and I hope, wives, you understand what a gift this is. I'm not here to exclude in any way, but it is in a covenantal marriage relationship, let me offend, between a man and a woman according to the Bible. And that God gives us this gift, and guess what it does? It creates new life. It is used for procreation. God could have used holding hands, and he didn't. I praise my God. And it is for intimacy of closeness and pleasure between a committed husband and wife. Let me read a little so you can get more mad at God than me. Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Hallelujah. So from the first book of the Bible, there's a precedence being made in the first relationship humanly in all of history. But just in case you're one of those biblically argumentative types that want to say, well, Jesus never talked about marriage. Yeah, he did. Yes, he did. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, Jesus says, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife? And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is the Word. So technically, he said what was said in Genesis. But he even quotes the original design of intimacy being a gift through marriage between a man and a woman while being grilled on what does God allow regarding divorce. That's where he quotes this in context. But Tim you might say. He doesn't say anything about sexual intimacy in this passage. You're right. But one of the reasons we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and know that Scripture doesn't contradict itself is because all of it is the word, logos, the truth, and that truth became flesh. So here's what God says through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring… 
Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Same, uh, next sentence, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexual intimacy with a, within a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman committed to God, it's a gift. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and encourages them in their committed relationships for both the husband and wife to fulfill their marital duty. That doesn't sound very romantic, does it? But the purpose is awesome in the fact that as a concession and an allowance, God gives you marriage. He gives married couples to enjoy one another through intimacy so each will not be tempted in some type of sexual perversion. Listen, sexual perversion, sexual immorality is not just weird stuff, okay? It's not. It's when your sexual intimacy is not in agreement with God's ideal between a man and a woman committed in a covenantal relationship with God and each other. There I said it. Marriage isn't only about sex. Marriage is about reflecting the gospel. And our sexual lusts can be redeemed in a committed marital covenant between a man and a woman and God, and it was God's idea, and he gives us the directions and parameters of how to use the gift for the glory of his name. So you want to know my stance on homosexuality? I believe God gets the copyright on intimacy and how it can be utilized as a gift and how it can unfortunately be perversed. Listen, this is God's ideal, and this is about belief. If your sexual preference is to go against God's ideal, I want you to know that there is grace for that in Jesus Christ. Hear me, but not cheap grace, a grace that we don't take for granted, but when we truly receive that grace, we're grateful for it. I was once asked on an airplane what I believed about homosexuality. Guy asked me what I did, and I was like, an accountant. No, I didn't say that. I said a pastor, and we started talking, and he goes, what do you think about homosexuality? And I said, you know, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I say, here's the thing. And longer story, but I don't have time. If Jesus rose from the dead, then God's real. And if God's real, he wrote a book, and it was his words, and we don't get to change what he says. God gets the copyright. So I also want to speak to those of us who have same-sex attraction. God loves you. He loves you enough to make a way that even though you sin, and I'm not just talking about your same-sex attraction, I'm talking about your unbelief in God, that he gives you a way to come in contact with a holy and perfect God because he's so good. Because he lived the life you couldn't, died the death you should have, and physically rose from the dead but it requires belief in this one true God who substituted his life for yours. But practically, if you love Jesus, but you have the same-sex attraction, and it's something that you still desire, I want you to know that God may never change that part of you, but he will be the one you can reach out to when you feel as if you just want to give in to your desires. Now, I say that, and we're talking about same-sex attraction, but this goes for any sexual exploits. 
that are not within a committed covenantal marriage relationship between a man and a woman. We often hear from people who misinterpret Scripture that God won't give you anything you can't handle. Raise your hand if you've said that. I'm just kidding. Please don't. But that's not what's communicated in 1 Corinthians. In fact, I'd say God allows for things we can't handle all the time. Any of us going through those right now? This sermon is one for me. God allows for things we can't handle because then we will realize our dependence upon Him and we will exercise it. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God provides a way. And sometimes through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's to run from that situation. But let me tell you what that way is. You know what he provides? The way? It's the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he provides. Jesus Christ. I have so many urges and things that I want to do that are so ungodly. Can I just be, can I admit that? I'm sure it's just me. But I have so many urges that are so ungodly, so, ir- 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 yeah, so unlike what a redeemed person of God would do. But by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I don't always act on those urges. I'm not saying I don't sometimes, but we aren't here to be perfect. We live this life to pursue the perfect one, and when we do, it leads to progress in our Christ-likeness if he's redeemed us. So if you person created in God's image who has same-sex attraction ever get from a church member or a person supposedly representing Christ that you're less than or you're unforgivable, please give me their email and let me teach them the Bible and introduce them to the true Jesus Christ. I think many of us do not know how to engage with people who are outside of a committed relationship with Jesus no matter their sexual preference. We kind of forget that even people that were gay were created in God's, or people that were born or created, I don't even know. Here's my answer. When it comes to were you created that way, I have no idea. I just know that I was created in such a way that I sin and I need Christ. (sighs) Glad I caught myself. But I want you to hear this. People with different sexual preferences, they were created in God's image too. I hope you can say amen to that. And that Christ's sacrifice can extend to them. So hear me, church, gay people, the only thing that makes someone, let me say it this way. I don't want people that are homosexual to use the church as an excuse for why they won't listen to Jesus anymore. I believe that if the Spirit is in someone, that they can love people and they can love God. And we ought to treat people that are far from God with grace and mercy. But at the same time, it doesn't mean you say, hey, you live however you want. It doesn't mean you condone everything that everyone else is doing. You love people, though. And unless they ask you, you don't give your unsolicited advice. Man, I could go on for two hours, and I won't. I think. I want the church of Jesus Christ to be a place where introductions to Jesus and helping us know him better is what we major on, rather than attempting to categorize people's sins. 
Because based on firsthand information, did you guys know this? Based on firsthand information, I'm the biggest sinner in this room by far because I know my heart. I don't know yours. In society today, we have taken lightly what God says about sin, not just sexual immorality, but gossip, slander, gluttony, pride, and many other things, and we pat them on the head and refuse to believe that we need forgiveness. The reason I get up on Sunday mornings is to preach the Word of God each week and simply tell you that you have sinned, and yet forgiveness is available to you in Jesus Christ. If you, by faith, would repent and place your identity solely in Him. Take a breath. I know this is a hot topic, and yet I want us to always take our preferences and our opinions and hold them up against the entirety of Scripture in the context in which the books of the Bible are written, and by grace alone, through faith alone, trust Christ alone in what He says even when we don't like it. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Scripture contradicts us. But here's what I'd say to those who treat homosexuality as the unforgivable sin. You miss the point entirely of the passages in the Bible of spe- that speaks of this. Any and all sin comes from an unwillingness to trust Christ as our salvation, and the effects of that are to live outside of the authority of what God says. I'd love for Christians to stop treating those, sexual pre- those who have sexual preferences that are different than theirs as someone that God can't save. Listen, everything Judah's saying about these people that God brought wrath upon is because they did not believe God. You can do a lot of stuff right within the Scriptures and do it for the wrong reasons, and it cannot and will not justify you. Only a perfect sacrifice that substitutes himself for you can incur the wrath of God on your behalf on a cross. So if you're gay or straight, your identity, you identify yourself as a Christian, a Muslim, a Catholic, non-binary, as a man or a woman, I have the same message for you. You need Jesus. Because salvation is the Lord's alone to give. You can't work your way to him. He worked his way to you. Sin, any type of sin, is rebellion against God's ideal, and most want to attempt to satisfy themselves with any and everything but God in the flesh, who is the only one who can truly satisfy. It's really easy to point to others and think, oh, well, they're what Jude's describing. But that's hearing this text in a cynical nature, and I'd much rather have us understand that the only difference between those who are God's children and those that Jude is describing is that God intervened and drew them to himself and that they received his grace. It's the only difference. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you identify yourself by today, I'm here to tell you that forgiveness in Jesus Christ is available to you. In the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus has paid it all so that you and I could find our satisfaction and identity in Christ alone. Let's pray.